Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Stevie Van Zandt. While perhaps best known as a founding member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band and leader of Little Stephen and Disciples of Soul, he is also a writer, producer, actor, having starred in The Sopranos and Lilyhammer, radio host on Sirius XM's Little Stephen's Underground Garage, political activist, founder of teachrock.org, and much more. He is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Stevie, welcome to That Said. Good to be with you, my friend. So this book, Unrequited Infatuations, was a fabulous read. I really, really liked it. Um, and I liked listening to it on the audio version as well, because you read it with such passion. So it, thank you for, for writing it, let me say, at the very outset of our time together. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. So tell me, if you would, though, how did you pick the title, Unrequited Infatuation? What does it mean to you? Well, I, I was looking for uh, the, the most universal themes that I could find. I wanted the book to be more than just a music book for music people. You know, and there's plenty of that stuff in there. But I, I was looking for something bigger. You know, I wanted it to read like a detective novel or, you know, a Dan Brown book where you don't know what's coming next. Cause I, I really haven't known what's coming next in my life, most of my life. Um, but what, what, um, I've had some great successes in my life, as you know, the E Street Band, uh, Sopranos, Lilyhammer, uh, the Sun City Project. Um, but the truth is, um, most of my most personal work has never found an audience. And, um, and so, um, I think, there's something about that that um, strikes me, along with the fact that the, this whole second half of the book, um, again, goes into a, a, a territory that was completely unplanned. Um, the first half being, you know, local kid from Jersey makes it to the top of rock and roll. And, and that's a great story in itself. You know, and I don't mean to sound ungrateful about that. But when I leave the E Street Band, starting this sort of the second half of the book, um, suddenly, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm staring into the abyss. You know, there's, there's no real plan from then on. And I have, in fact, not just changed jobs. I've ended my life as I knew it, you know, and, and, um, and at the time it was a completely unknown uh, what would happen. Now, as it turns out, everything I've accomplished, I've accomplished since I left the band, since I thought my life had ended. Uh, and I thought, now there's something probably uh, universal there. Uh, I think, uh, you know, sooner or later, everybody's going to have some disappointment in their, in their, in their life, in their lives. And, and, uh, and, and it's not the disappointment that happens, but what do you do with it? What happens after that? You know, uh, do, do you let it stop you? Uh, do you, do you numb yourself with dope and alcohol or do you, do you commit suicide? you know, all of which occurred to me, um, or do you find a way to move forward? And, and, and if you do find a way to move forward, uh, destiny has some surprises for you and may, it may turn out to uh, surprise you in, in a good way that, you, you know, your life isn't exactly, it has, isn't over. And, and so that, I think, is a more universal sort of a truth as, as one, you know, uh, searches for identity, searches for purpose in life. And and, uh, and and the the fact that my most personal work has never found an audience, you know, 
is the, you know, unrequited infatuations. Um, but that doesn't really um, affect the way I feel about my work, which I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud of. You know, yeah, I don't measure, look, I don't, you know, I don't measure it that way. Yeah. And we'll talk about it. It, it seemed to me that you were saying in the title that you're going to be disappointed in life. There's going to be frustrations. The question is, what do you do in the face of, of this? And this memoir um, really chronicles how you moved forward in the frustrations and the disappointment, which is, I think, why it makes it so meaningful. It's not just, I grew up in New Jersey, and I, I met this guy, and we formed a band, and exactly. we lived happily ever after. It, it's, not that, it's not that at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it starts off that way, you know, and, and, that, and that is great. It's a great story in itself. It is. But, you know, but then halfway through the book, the whole thing, the whole thing changes. And I think it becomes a much more, you know, universally uh, appealing, you know, story at that point. Yeah, you and well, let's talk about part one and two. Part one is your coming of age story. And as you say, part two is your search for identity and spiritual enlightenment and finding a purpose. And I think importantly, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, how to meaningfully contribute. Because I think that's a big theme in your life, mm. meaningful participation in society as a citizen and as an artist. True. True. So can we, though, focus a little bit on part one of the book? And you're an Italian kid growing up in New Jersey. So tell us about that a little bit. <laughs> well, we were the luckiest generation ever. And uh, um, we were... We were we were catered to. We were sort of the first real baby boom generation, and and uh, and we're there just in time for the suburbs to be invented, uh, just in time for the teenager to be invented, which I talk about, you know, and and that, and that's the that's the most fun part of the book for me was, go, you know, transporting myself back to the sixties and and talking about the history, you know, and and. Uh, and I, and I said to my, I said to my editor, my very, very, very good editor, Ben Greenman, I said, listen, your main job is making sure that I maintain three separate tracks simultaneously, which is my narrative, the history of rock and roll, and the craft that I've been involved with. You know, I want those three, I want those three in, in balance the whole time. And, and, and that first part of it is, uh, is a lot of the history and how, um, teenagers, uh, suddenly were created in the 50s and we kind of got the benefit of it in the 60s um, uh, by being um, you know like I say uh, catered to in this renaissance period when the best art being made was also the most commercial and when that happens you're in a renaissance um, and we and you know getting into a rock and roll band in in those days well, there was no there was no band culture before the Beatles and the British Invasion. I, I should say, um, you didn't see that many bands. Four or five guys playing together and singing. If you went to your high school dance, it was an instrumental group. So the Beatles uh, playing that Ed Sullivan show, February ninth, nineteen sixty four, um, was a, a variety show. The entire family would watch every Sunday night. Completely changed the culture from no bands to everybody had a band the next day in the garage, you know, and uh, most of them mercifully stayed there. But but um, a dozen or so of us got out, and suddenly uh, everybody was going to see bands, and it was it became a thing. And there was just dozens of places to play if you were in a band, 
And when you weren't playing, you were going to see bands. You know, you might occasionally go to a drive-in movie, you know. But uh, other than that, it was all about bands at that moment. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time to grow up. And you said in the book, for me, this is you writing, for me, bands were the beginning of life. Bands communicated friendship, family, the gang, the posse, the team, and ultimately the community. Suddenly, everything started to make sense. Yeah, for for the misfits, outcasts, and freaks like me, who had no uh, no options that we liked. Um, I mean, you know, society was offering us, you know, a job, uh, uh, college, military. I was too small for sports. None of that interested me. None of it. So I had really no future in mind uh, until the ba- until the bands came. And suddenly here was this whole new world that was so, uh, so exciting. Um, and something that I could really picture being a part of, um, you know, both as a job and, and, and just culturally in, in general, being part of this new, new idea of, of, a, of, a, of a band, you know, so it was, it came along just in time. Yeah. You said that it became your pagan religion, uh, rock and roll. Right? Yeah. Yes, yes. For me, you know, you know I, I was a very religious kid, and uh, and so my I, I trans I transferred my my you know my my passion for at first I was born Catholic, then grew, grew up Baptist, Protestant, and then I transferred that passion to to rock and roll, and you know eventually, I mean the Beatles and Stones uh, were my first gods, and then you know I would later discover Little Richard and Chuck Berry and. So you wrote something interesting about the Beatles, Rolling Stones, in your formative period here. You write that the Beatles were perfection, and you couldn't achieve that level of perfection. But you said you were watching the Rolling Stones. I think they were on the Hollywood Palace show in 1964. And you said when they were done, Mick Jagger didn't smile. You write, I suddenly understood... I didn't have to be perfect or even happy. They ignited a spark in me, a new way of thinking, a world without rules, without limitations. The Beatles showed us the world. The Stones invited us in. Yeah, uh, they, they just made it look easier than it was. Uh, and the Beatles, uh, we, we, we caught the Beatles halfway through the career. They were together since like 57, gone in 69. And by the time we saw them, they were just ridiculously good. You know, the harmony was perfect. Everything about them was perfect. Hair, the clothes, you know. And, you know, you could look at them and say, wow, what an exciting new world. But you couldn't really picture being part of it exactly. It was just a little a little too advanced, you know. And uh, But the Stones, you know, they, they were very casual. Um, the, the, the Stones really were... In many ways, the first punk band, you know, not, not, not musically. I mean, they were, they were missionaries for the blues, you know, and, and our early R&B. But they were, they were uh, very much what the, what, the, what the punk movement would later do for rock and roll, which was make it look easy, you know, easier than it, than it is. And, um, and, and, um, and encourage people to want to be a part of it, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's what happened. That's what happened with, with, with a lot of us, I think. 
you know, when you say they invited you in, when the Stones invited you in, it's sort of like they made it, they made you believe it was accessible. It was accessible yes. to you. Yeah. You had said that you dreamed of, of being a rock and roll star, but the chances of being discovered coming out of New Jersey were only slightly higher than they were coming out of Tanganyika. So, you know, you were realistic and the Stones perhaps gave you hope, right? Yeah, yeah, you, 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 weren't, you weren't thinking too far ahead in those days, you know, uh, one step at a time here. Let's, you know, let's, let's learn the craft. Let's, uh, try and find a local gig and, um, and let's, uh, let's, let's see what we can do, um, in our local area, you know, uh, that, that was about as hopeful as you, as you got at, at that stage. Yeah. And you were in, um, the source that was your band, yes. right? And you say this around 1965 is when you meet Bruce Springsteen. He's in the Castiles. You're in the the source. That's, that's right. Tell us about that, if you would. You're meeting young Mister Springsteen. You know, again, there's about a dozen of us got out of get out of the garage, and, and we all knew each other. And, and, um, you know, came into the club where, where we were playing and, and we said hello. Um, um, I think we, we started to really bond when, when I would go up on Saturdays about an hour, hour and 15 minutes on the bus to Greenwich Village, uh, to the Cafe Wa, which is still there. And, um, and, and see the bands in the afternoon, Saturday afternoons and then come home, you know, before, before night. Um, and, and those bands were like, uh, you know, a year ahead of us in New Jersey. So you go and you steal ideas and bring them back to your own band, you know. Um, and, and I started running into him doing the same thing, which was odd. You know, uh, even an hour out of town seemed like a, a, a great distance in those days. And so we, uh, we, we got friendly and started coming up to New York together at that point. And, and, uh, and, and we slowly or, or quickly realized, um, we were the only other guy we knew who felt that strongly about rock and roll, that rock and roll was everything to us. You know, it wasn't a, a hobby. It wasn't something we do on the weekend. And, and then we're going to go and do our lives after that. Um, this was it for us. You know, there was no plan B for, for us. And so we, um, I think we strengthened each other at a time when, when it was really, really uh, helpful uh, at that, you know, that, at that age. Because, uh, you know, if you're the only freak in town, you got to start worrying, you know, <laughs> that maybe you've got a problem. <laughs> but if there's two of you, uh, you know, then, then maybe you're on to something, you know. Uh, you, so it, was, it, was, it was helpful. You write something which made me laugh out loud. You said that you would go to Bruce's house and you'd listen to music in his room. You go to the Fillmore, you go to the Cafe Wa, you'd listen to music in his room. And you wrote that the one thing about going to Bruce's room to listen to music was that you had, it was a little scary, you write, because going to Bruce's house, we had to pass the kitchen where his father often was sitting and smoking and staring out into space. Like my dad, he seemed always on the brink of exploding into violence to vent a lifetime of frustration intensified by having a son who was one of New Jersey's only freaks. In those early days, we were an embarrassment to them, failures they took personally. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was the generation gap that, um, that, that, that history talks about. Um, 
the biggest that I thought would ever be, but I think we're kind of into one right now that's quite, that's quite uh, wide, actually. Uh, it's, it's more subtle now. You know, uh, people aren't, aren't, at, aren't at war with their parents. In fact, they're living with them you know, forever. But, but it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite, a, quite a gap going on now technologically. But, but back then, it was, it was out-and-out uh, uh, war. I mean, they, we, were, we were very much an embarrassment to them, and, uh, and, and they saw no, no possible future in this rock and roll thing. Um, it wasn't a legitimate business until the 70s, you know. Um, and, in fact, when we started, the only rock and roll stars were English. So not only was it not a business, but we weren't even – British. <laughs> so, you know, what, what, what chance do you have? You know, and if you, if you really were being logical, you would have probably agreed with your parents, you know, when they said, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a Beatle? Right. You know, you're going to be a Rolling Stone? You know, and you'd have to say, well, <laughs> it is a bit of a long shot, I must admit. But again, we had no plan B. So we were just, we were just forging ahead, you know. So as you forge ahead, the, the, the 60s roll into the 70s. You're in a different band. I forget. It's either Gingerbread or Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom, right? And and Springsteen is now in a new band, Steel Mill, right? You're still working your way into the business, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. We had a different, a different band every couple of months. Sometimes I'd be the leader. Sometimes he'd be the leader. Sometimes we'd be in different bands. Uh, you know, we're finding our way. You know, you're building your identity slowly, you know. But something happened, which you write in 72, you say Springsteen decides to try and reinvent himself and he's going to become a singer songwriter. And he gets signed by the legendary John Hammond and he's going to form a new a new band, which you try out for, but don't make. Right. That had to be stunning. Yeah, it it was. Relatively traumatic, I'm sure. Um, in fact, I, it was traumatic to the point where I quit the business, you know, for the first time. <laughs> uh, and um, went and worked construction for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of thought we, we'd missed the boat anyway. You know, I thought, I thought most of the great stuff had been done. Uh, and I wasn't that far wrong, by the way. Um, but, 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 uh, you know, I, but it, it bothered me, uh, you know, a little bit. Um, in the end, it was doing me a favor because, um, I would end up, uh, completing my education by ending up on the oldie circuit, what was called the oldie circuit, meeting all the pioneers of rock, uh, for the entire year of, uh, around 73. Um, so that was, it was, it was actually, it was a good thing from, from, for my education purposes. Cause, um, I, I never, I never, you know, like I said, I never heard of the pioneers, first of all, until the British invasion uh, introduced them to us. Um, uh, but, um, but I got a chance to meet them all and observe them up close. And, uh, it was really a, a very important part of my street education. Yeah. Yeah. That was in, in Vegas. Yes, included and included Vegas. That's yeah. right, which was very exciting to me. I was a bit of a gambler as a kid, so that was uh, quite exciting to get to, to Vegas. And uh, and, I, and I'm glad I, I got I got there when I did because I, I caught really the last year the mob was in control, and uh, it's a very very different town 
back then. It would soon turn into Disneyland, but uh, but back then it was it was a whole different a whole different vibe. Mm. So you do this musical education, the oldies circuit in Las Vegas, and then you're back in the mid 70s, 74, 75, and you're with Southside Johnny, and you are just like killing it in Asbury Park. You've essentially invented the bar band sound. Yeah, we didn't know it at the time. We we kind of reinvented it. Um uh, me and Southside and, and Bruce and and I think Gary Talent maybe um, went to see Sam and Dave at a local club, and um, just completely blew our minds uh, how amazing they were at their peak. And so we decided, me and Southside, we, we, you know, we we decided we'd be the white Sam and Dave. Now I'm already a rock and roll guitar player, so uh, we we add horns because they had horns. And so suddenly we're doing this com- combination of rock and soul, which really had already started with stacks in general, with Booker T and the MGs being, you know, um, Steve Cropper's a- really adding some rock guitar to the to the soul music at the time, um, and um, and we um, and we and we had a g- we get we get a residency at a local club and. Uh, and start to um, institutionalize the rock and soul thing, uh, which hadn't it really existed. Um, bar bands at that point had been doing whatever the top 40 were. That's what was demanded of them. Uh, we were lucky to be able to break that, uh, uh, that tradition um, uh, by, by, by finding a club that was about to close and we convinced them to let us play whatever we wanted to because we're not charging them anything. We, we'll take the door, you take the bar, but we're going to play whatever we want. And and, and we were able to do that uh, because they were literally going to close four weeks later. Um, but then, they, of course, they didn't. Um, but it was it was a, it was a transformation of what was going on in the bars, um, rather than being tied to the top forty. Um, which in the 70s, uh, you know, was not uh, where you want to be. I mean, uh, the, the, the top 40, the pop music of the 60s uh, is the highest evolution of our art form. That's, that's my favorite stuff. But by the 70s, it started to, um, it started to really become more, more uh, mediocre and, and, and would soon change. So while you're doing this, Springsteen is with the, E Street Band, I guess they're called at the time. And he has, I guess, the Born to Run album comes out in 75, and he's going to go on tour. And you join the band, right? You go, you start up with him. You leave Southside Johnny and Asbury Park, and you go with Springsteen in 75 on the Born to Run tour. Yeah, yeah. He decided to put the guitar down and try fronting, which was a whole new idea for him. Um, and um, I would play the guitar while he would front, you know, just sing. Um, just out of, uh, you know, a little bit of desperation, since the first two albums had kind of hit the wall and um, were not successful. Um, so he's trying something completely new just to, See what he could do. See, see if he could break break through somehow. And um, yeah, I went I went for seven seven gigs, and uh, 
stayed seven years. Right. And that takes us through the river tour and the breakout success of, of Hungry Heart. And in 83, it sort of appears as if you're breaking through. You write in the prologue of the book, it's interesting, in the prologue of the book, um, and in the epilogue of the book, you write in the third person. In, in the rest of the book, you're writing in the first person, although I would love to speak to you at some point about the very uh, beginning of the book, the overture section, because it's very sort of Dylan Chronicles, Kesey Kerouac sort of writing. But I'm not sure if we'll have time. We'll have to come back and do part two of this interview, perhaps. But in 83, in this prologue, you write writing in the third person about yourself, he, meaning you, worked night and day with the E Street Band, proudly contributing to making them the biggest and best in the world. Then in a moment of clarity or insanity, take your pick, he, you, had left the band to discover who he was and how the world worked. It was now or never, he knew. Once you take that road down to being rich, there ain't no going back. The rich had too much to lose. He chose to the adventure instead of the money. Yeah, what a putz. <laughs> well, I want to talk about this, uh, calling, calling a putz. I don't want to become your psychiatrist, but I, I don't agree with that. I don't, dis- I don't agree with that description uh, of you at all. Well, you know, a, little, a, little, a little humor. You've got to have a little humor in there. Um, uh, I mean, at, at the time, uh, I thought I was really messing with destiny. Uh, it turns out, uh, looked like I was fulfilling destiny, actually. You know, because like I say, I, I ended up, everything I've done in my life, pretty much I've done after that. Uh, so, uh, um, but, it, but it, it becomes much, it became more clearly, more clear to me as I went back and transported myself back to that moment and, and really relived it. Because uh, all, all of these years, I don't really look back, but all of these years, I've always kind of felt, geez, it was a shame I couldn't do both. You know, I would have, I wish I could have stayed in the band and done Sopranos and Willie Hammer and, and become an artist and done seven albums, you know, and done the Sun City Project and busted Mandela out of jail. And, you know, uh, and it was, it's been kind of a, you know, fantasy in the back of my head all these years. When you really go back, you realize there's no way, you know, there's no way you could have done that. Um, you know, you can't, you can't, you, you're committed to a band. You can't say, by the way, Bruce, can I, you know, can I have six months off to go try and be an actor? You know, uh, that's not going to work. Uh, so, so it turns out that I think uh, things actually worked out the way they were supposed to. And I didn't, you know, really, really come to grips with that until I went back and, and wrote the book. You know, and really relived it, you know, and said, you know, let's be realistic here. You know, none of this would have happened. Yeah. You you say in quitting the band in 83, they were on the brink of really making it. Born to Run is somewhat successful. Hungry Heart is somewhat successful. But right after that, Born in the USA is the explosion. And you said if I had stayed in the band, I would have never had to have thought about money in my life again. But you say, right in the middle of the book, pages like 154, 155, you say, because I think this is really the beginning of part two 
of the book. This is your realization about your life. And you say there were pluses and minuses. The minuses were I lost my juice. I lost my power base. I lost many of my friends. I blew a chance to live without having to worry about money. But on the plus side, I would write the music that would make up the bulk of my life's work and get to do a whole host of other things. So I think in the balance of it, Stevie, as I read it, I thought to myself, this is a guy who, like Cat Stevens in music or Jim Brown in football or Dick Gregory in comedy, said, you know what? I'm at this sliding doors film moment, and I'm going to take this path. And I think in, in retrospect, as you say, this was the right choice. This was the right choice. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I, I agree with, with you, you know, now, you know, I, I think that's right. Um, but for years, I wondered about that. You know, I really did. I, I really wondered about that. And, um, uh, but I'm, 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 I'm quite at peace with it now. Yeah, as I think you should be. You, you quote Dylan and Rolling Stones in this period. You say that the choice that you made sort of put you on the pavement thinking about the government and learning that the pump don't work because the vandals took the handles. <laughs> Whereas if you stayed in the band, you're, you know, the Rolling Stones, street fighting man, what can a poor boy do but to sing in a rock and roll band? And your being on the pavement thinking about the government was the right choice for you because it opened up a whole, whole new world for you of activism and political engagement and the like. Yeah, and it continued that 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 sort of uh, feeling I had as a kid. Uh, again, for, for some reason, this obsession with knowing who's pulling the strings, who, who's in control. You know, who you know? How can I? How can I? You know, I I, just, I hated being a kid because I, I felt that you know that that. that you know, the adults had all the secrets, you know, and I think that's what made me more a religious kid because, because I thought maybe the secrets were in religion. You know, I always felt that there was something, some information being withheld, you know. Uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where that comes from, but I just, I always, I've always felt that. And, 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 uh, and that's what compelled me as a kid, you know, to want to grow up. And, 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 and that's why I got so religious. And in the end, that's why I started, you know, uh, studying the government and, and, and what's going on in terms of worldwide politics. Uh, it was the same. It was the same sort of obsession, the same, the same impulse to want to know what's going on, you know. Uh, and uh, so, so it was. It was very, very, um, you know, in something in my DNA very early on. That was fulfilled, I think, by by that path I took. Also, yeah, you and Marvin Gaye. The the, but I'd like to, so we're in the early 1980s at this point in your life, and and I'd like to talk a little bit more about your politics. But tell me, if you would, the story that you re recount in the book about meeting a German kid in Berlin who asks you why are you putting all these missiles in our country? Because I think that was a aha moment for you. Yeah, yeah, that that was the breakthrough moment because I was the least political guy in the world. I mean, I, how I managed to get through the entire '60s without a political thought is quite, quite a, quite a feat. 
you know, there were a few things going on in the 60s you may have read about. <laughs> let me just say, let me say, just to interrupt what's in, you and I are only six months apart in age, so uh, I, I know this well. So go on, yeah. please. So, so, uh, so there I am, you know, with this incredible tunnel vision. I mean, a real tunnel, you know, concrete. And uh, we we make it, really, with the river. The river was a success, a complete success. Our first hit single was Selling Out Arenas. And, um, and so uh, the impossible dream has been realized. And my tunnel starts to fade. And on that tour... Um, me and Bruce went into, you know, went through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, which was interesting and kind of, you know, stimulating in a, in a, in a way. And then, and then, uh, and then that same tour, a kid in West Germany asked me why I'm putting missiles in this country. I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about and, and I told him so. And, uh, but it stayed with me for a, a week or two until I realized, oh my God. You know, in this kid's eyes, I'm not a guitar player or a taxi driver or a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an American. Never had occurred to me before. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's not the kind of thing that occurs to you growing up in New Jersey, <laughs> you know, that, that you're an American, you know. Uh, and, and, and so suddenly uh, I thought, well, we're supposed to be a democracy. Of course, I found out we're not really a democracy, but, you know, we're close enough. Uh, and, and therefore, I'm responsible for what my government does. And maybe I am putting missiles in this country, and I wonder what else I'm doing. Which caused me to do something I'd never done before, which was to start reading books. And, and uh, started reading books about our foreign policy since World War II. Was shocked to find out that we are not the heroes of democracy around the world I thought we were. But I grew up believing from my ex-Marine Goldwater Republican father. And uh, slowly, um, I, I started to educate myself about it and thought, you know, well, maybe this will be my thing. Uh, you know, I mean, growing up in the Renaissance, as I did, each band had to have a distinct identity. Um, and um, I thought, well, the world does not need uh, love songs from an ex-sideman. Uh, so maybe I'll be the political guy. I mean, no, nobody's doing it full time. You know, twenty four seven, every single song, and so I thought that that that'll be my thing, and uh, I, I and I became that, and um, and started to start this journey as a artist slash journalist, um, which would soon, uh, you know, I mean, it, it finally hit me that that I left the band. It was a kind of an, an emotional moment, so I wasn't really thinking about what I was doing. Um, but on the plane ride to South Africa, it finally hit me that I'd not just changed jobs, I ended my life. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, so suddenly, um, uh, I, I, I was, I was, uh, confronted with, with the, with a whole new, a whole new life ahead of me that was, Unplanned, uh, and uh, and and that was and that was the beginning of, of of an adventure that that you know the whole second half of the book. Yep, yep, and we'll talk about that in one second. But I made a note to myself. You said when you came back in 1980 and you decided that you needed to really figure out what this kid was talking about, 
you picked up a book by Noam Chomsky to learn what was going on. Howard Zinn would have been fine, too. And I think to myself, thank God he didn't pick up a book by Henry Kissinger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I I read both sides in the end. But, yeah, I happened to start with Noam Chomsky, and that was was the end of that. That's right. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But what was interesting to me as you embark on this solo career, you said that if you were going to go solo – you wanted your albums to be concept albums. And you had five concepts, which I'd like to talk about, because you said at the very outset that, you know, your solo music never broke through. And, you know, I don't know how you measure breaking through. If you break through to three or four people, you know, then in a very meaningful way, it may be better than 10,000 people in a very superficial way. But your five concept albums, you ask these questions, album one, who has power and why? Number two, how much of the government is endorsed by the governed? Three, who and what controls our destinies? Four, what is humanity's common ground? And five, how much of a chance do we really have to change things? These are these are great topics for concept albums. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, about them, because it's important stuff, Stevie, I think. Yeah, I, I was trying to do, you know, two things simultaneously, which was educate myself and also, uh, pass that information along to the, to, to the, to an audience in the form of our storytelling art form. Uh, so I would go and investigate a situation. Um, let's take, um, Latin America, the situation, you know, it, which I talked about in my second album, Voice of America, uh, Los Desaparecidos, as, as, a, as, a, as a song example. Um, we had a, uh, basically, you know, the military dictatorships uh, enforcing basically slave labor uh, uh, for the benefit of the multinational corporations, uh, and all of which was being aided by our, our tax dollars. And, and, and they were... Um, and, and, and they would uh, literally disappear uh, people, uh, disappear men, anybody who's a union activist or, or whatever. Uh, they would come in the middle of the night and, and, and take them out and, and, and they never, never to be seen again. Uh, and they became known as the desaparecidos. And, and so I, but now, okay, so that's the story. Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the fact, that's the reality. Now you turn it into a story. So I turned it into a story of a mother talking to her son, you know, explaining why her father, why, why the son's father is not coming home that night, you know, uh, and, and that became, and that became Los Desaparecidos. So you had to you know, convert the, uh, the, the, the issue that you wanted to talk about into a story. And then on, on the album cover, I would list the books. Uh, if I said, you know, what we do is communicate emotional information and uh, if I if I reach you in some way emotionally, and you want to know where that came from, then you can read these books and find out. You know, um, because our our art form is, is 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 not really great at passing along information information. Uh, although that's what I had to do with with Sun City, but but generally speaking, it's 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 a storytelling media. You know, and. Uh, and you, and you want to just uh, engage them emotionally, you know that that that's the that's the uh, that's the art form. Yeah, and I think that if you engage them emotionally and they 
learn about who was Sumosa and who was Trujillo and who was Pinochet and, and how did we, you know, prop up those governments and how did we destroy economies and the like, then you've made a big difference. I think you've made a big difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was the idea. And, um, and, um, you know, it, it came to, uh, you know, it came to, a, you know, the ultimate example of it with Sun City, where we were entirely successful in helping bring down the South African government and, and getting Mandela out of jail. And I go into great detail about yeah. it. And but, let, but, let's talk know. about it, because in your song, Freedom, you ask, what are you going to do with your life? That, right. that, and and I think Sun City, in some sense, was part of the answer that, that, that you gave of what you're going to do with your life. So tell us, tell us. Take us through Sun City, because I think it was about, I mean, with no disrespect to George Harrison or Willie Nelson, Live Aid, Farm Aid, etc., there's a really big difference between raising money to feed people and raising money for regime change. Um, and, and, and yours, your Sun City effort was about the latter. Yeah, well, not raising money, but raising consciousness. Yeah. In our case, because we had to, uh, um, well, I mean, the, uh, how can we do this in a short uh, soundbite here? Um, basically, uh, it was it was on my list as, as one of the many conflicts we were engaged in. As I as I made this list of things I was reading about, um, uh, and, and and I couldn't find out much about it. It was just not an issue in America. Uh, you know, you'd have an occasional Harry Belafonte would mention it or. Randall Robinson, you know, would try and organize a little bit of a protest in front of an Exxon building or something, but it was just not catching on, and it just it just wasn't an issue. Um, so I, I decided to go down there and 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 really investigate it, and um, and uh, as I said, it was on it was on that plane flight to South Africa that it finally hit me that uh, I had not just changed jobs; I had actually ended my life by leaving the East Street Band. And and, uh, and uh, it was an interesting moment because uh, I never had been a good flyer. And I and I felt all the fear just leave my body entirely at that moment when I realized my life is over. You know, I've blown it. Uh, uh, but um, that energy suddenly uh, became very focused uh, on South Africa because that's all I had. That's all I had left. I, and I, I thought I have to make something i have to justify my existence at this point I, i'm i'm done i've blown i've blown any hope of a of a of a happy life uh so i i need to get something something done here uh in order to justify my existence uh it happened to be south africa and and, and so um i looked at it and and it took me two trips down there to really figure it out and i you know i go into pretty good detail in the book and and then um and then I decided, you know, these guys got to go. I mean, uh, uh, all this talk about reform is all nonsense. Um, they simply got to go. Um, let me just explain the policy really quickly, if I can. Uh, sure. The idea, the idea they had was take, get all the black black people out of South Africa um, into and uh, bring them to their phony homelands, tribal homelands. They were not particularly tribal in South Africa, except for the Zulu. Another story. But they so 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 take the black people, return them to their so-called tribal homelands, and then declare those tribal homelands as independent countries. 
then bring the, all the blacks back in as immigrant labor and declare South Africa a democracy. Uh, you know, a very brilliant plan and uh, very evil. And so um, I picked Sun City. This resort was in one of the phony homelands. And they were offering people lots of money to come play there, telling them they're not violating the UN boycott because they're playing a separate country, which, of course, was just a, a lie. So I decided I'll use that as, as, the, as the example. We, um, the sports boycott had been established, very successful, thanks to Arthur Ashe and others. The home run was going to be the economic sanctions. And so I said, we'll bridge it with the cultural sanction, with the cultural boycott. And, and, and so right from the beginning, our challenge was to raise enough consciousness that when that sanctions bill came across Reagan's desk and we knew he would veto it because he was part of the unholy trinity supporting apartheid with Thatcher and Cole, um, when he vetoed it, we'd ha- we need enough momentum to override a Reagan veto, which had never happened. And um, long story short, that's exactly what happened. We um, The sanctions bill came, Reagan vetoed it, and we overrode the veto with Republican votes, just to show how different the world was then. Okay? There's Republicans standing up for the voting rights of black South Africans. And here they are today doing everything they can to stop black Americans from voting. Slightly different Republican Party, huh? Anyway, uh, that was a, you know, the, the banks cut them off. They had to let Mandela out of jail and, uh, and the dominoes fell. And, 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 uh, so that was a very rare, complete victory in the, in the world of international liberation politics. And if you were just a singer in a rock and roll band, to go back to were you a putz or, or did you make a very brave and important decision, were you just a singer in a rock and roll band, who knows what happens in South Africa? Because nobody else was taking up the anti-apartheid cause in the same way that you did around the Sun City album and, and movement. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, would the government have inevitably fallen? Probably but we certainly took years off of it for, for, for sure, you know. And who knows? I mean, if I stayed in the East Street Band, Mandela might still be in jail. I mean, you know, who, who knows? You know, you don't know. So, so yeah, you, you just got to look at it like, hey, man, that actually wasn't messing with destiny. That was fulfilling destiny, perhaps. Yeah. You, you talk a lot about that word destiny. Um, it comes up, it comes up a lot. <laughs> it sure does. Um, <laughs> It sure does. How, how, just before we turn to the 1990s and uh, a telephone call from uh, David Chase, um, just talk a little bit about destiny, because you, you really do talk about, was I messing with destiny? Was I looking for destiny? Was destiny coming to look for me? Talk about that a little bit. It's very spiritual, I think. Yeah, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure I have a real clear picture of, of what that means, you know, other than... Uh, I mean, when you look at, I, 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 uh, I, I delineate the, 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 the 10 ridiculous things that had to happen for me to get Sopranos, you know, and, and it really makes you wonder, you know, because it, it wasn't just one or two crazy things that happened. There was 10 crazy things that had to happen, you know, and you just wonder sometimes, you know, uh, are we in control here or, or, or not? I, I don't know, you know. Uh, you know, we, yes, we have some willpower. We do have a bit of willpower, but, uh, 
maybe not as much as we think. It, you know what I mean? It seems like something is something is uh, something is moving moving the pieces around. But maybe it's just our first three years on Earth or first five years that, that determine these things. And you know, you think you're making decisions when actually you know it's already ingrained in your in your in your circumstance or in your DNA. Who knows? But I, I don't I don't I don't have any real I don't have any real specific understanding of, of the word other than I, I just it just feels like the only word you can use like 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 just uh, in this crazy uh, uh, you know anything can happen type of world you know maybe, maybe you know you you want there to be some some kind of order you know I mean that's why we become an artist in the first place you know you're trying to make order out of chaos. That that's what that's what you're doing, you know. And I think it's, it's kind of you're you're always trying to make order out of the chaos. I think in life, so I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, in Yiddish, there's a word, and I'm sure I'll get it wrong, and I'll hear from my mother and her friends. <laughs> but I think it, they they say "basher," which is essentially "what'll be will be," but "what'll be will be for the best." So it's mm. a destiny. Um, sort of notion, which is you, you can't easily tell right from wrong, the road less traveled, because they all lead in different directions, and which direction they lead will be for the best, more or less. Well, I'm not sure it's always for the best, but but, well, <laughs> you yeah. know, but certainly yeah. what will be will be. I do, I do believe, I do, I do agree with the first part of that. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> you're right that the 1990s were a bit of a lost decade for you that you had no real clear mission at this point. And you again are in this period of self-doubt. You think, well, first I screwed up by leaving the E Street Band. And then second, I, I screw up by treating my solo career as a purely artistic endeavor. True, true. Again, I think you're very hard on yourself. And well, I mean, um, it, I'm it, glad it, this book was cathartic in, in some sense. Yeah, but 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 I'm also you know being brutally honest and accurate. I, I mean, you know, if, if you're going to have a career, a career means uh, a job. A job means you get paid. You know, um, and, and um, I, you know, there was I, I I couldn't find I couldn't find an audience, or I, I couldn't maintain a a steady, consistent audience. Um, and um, you know that's impossible. It's impossible to maintain such a thing. And, and you, I carried it on on as long as I could. I, I carried it through five albums, you know, which I'm very proud of. But um, you can't have five different albums and five different genres and expect there to be a consistent audience. And you can't have a career without a manager, you know. And I never found a manager uh, until recently. Only forty years too late, uh, and um, you know, so so it, it was it was a bit naive, I think, in my on my part to uh, to just you know bull my way forward throughout the eighties, um, thinking it's all going to be fine in the end, uh, because it wasn't. Mm. You know, so commercially, you know. yeah, commercially, commercially, I I can't disagree with that, but. There's a lot. You wrote somewhere that you never make decisions on the basis of money and you make decisions on the basis of your heart and soul. And 
So these decisions reflect that, and commercial is just one component of it. Yeah, and and I, that's just that's just me, and that's not going to change, you know. Um, so you know, I'm not sure what, you, what 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 you do about that exactly, other than you have make sure you have a manager who is thinking about money, you know, mm-hmm. who, who who you know make sure that you you know whatever you're doing gets marketed first of all, because what I was doing was not the most uncommercial things in the world. You know, uh, if you go back and listen to the music, uh, I think it's potentially quite commercial, actually. Um, but nobody was selling it. You know, I mean, that's the manager's job, man, to be an advocate. And there was nobody, there was no advocate. So so that was the problem more than anything, was not having that partner who is thinking about money and commercial success and going to make sure that happens so you can go off and be an artist and do whatever you feel like doing artistically. You need that protection. You need that. You need somebody protecting that. And 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 that's and that was my big flaw of my life it was was not having that. Hmm. So it's 1998 now in our story, and you are sort of sitting at home, and the phone rings more or less, and someone answers it and says, "There's a guy named David Chase on the phone." And I think your answer was sort of like, who? And said, yeah, a guy named David Chase, he wants to talk to you. Uh, so tell us about that phone call and, and what it, what it led to. And then also I want to talk right after that about another phone call that you got. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the other phone call was, but let's talk about Dave, who's David Chase and what, why was he calling you? Yeah, they, they, um, there was a series of things which we don't we we can skip. You can read about in the book. You know they can read about in the book. But but basically, um, in the end, uh, David Chase calls. Says you know I'm I'm doing a new TV show. Uh, you know, do you want to be in it? And I say, well, thank you, David, but no, I really you know don't. <laughs> uh, and he says, why not? I say, well, one one simple problem. I'm not an actor. And he says, well, yes, you are. You just don't know it yet. Now, it just so happens I had nothing better to do. So I, I went, I went down there and, um, and, uh, you know, I read, read for him and, uh, and, um, you know, I thought, I thought, well, this, this is an odd opportunity, uh, coming at a time when I really, I'm, I'm, I'm once again in the wilderness, you know, I'm kind of out of the music business at that point. Um, I'm now, you know, I've left my second job, my second music job in terms of my artist, my, my own solo career. I walked away from that also. So now I'm just, I'm just, well, maybe, maybe this acting thing is, uh, something to consider. So, so I, I, I kind of, I took it as seriously as I could. I mean, I, I found out where John Gotti got his clothes made and, and uh, designed a certain uh, hairstyle and wrote a, you know, Kind of got got a, an idea of who the guy was, and I went down there and, and read for him, and uh, and uh, he wanted me to read for Tony Soprano. So, uh, um, and and uh, he he really liked it, and hired me as Tony Soprano. Uh, then he says, "Well, there's a formality. We got to go. We got to go read for HBO." 
Uh, now keep in mind, now this is a guy who's been, he's been in TV his whole life. He, he's, he, this is going to be his last TV show. He's, he's itching to get into the movie business. He's been wanting to make a movie his whole life, but he's been kind of trapped in the TV world. One, one show after the other, this is going to be his last, his last go at TV. So he's ready to break all the rules. He doesn't care about the rules anymore. Uh, so he wants new faces and that's where I come in. And, um, so we go to HBO and, um, and, and they said, you know, he's, he's fine. He could be in a show, but we're not going to invest the biggest investment of our lives in a guy who doesn't, who never acted before. So he says, okay, uh, what, you can do any other part you want. I said, I'll tell you the truth. Now that I, now that I'm thinking about it, I said, I really, I feel guilty taking an actor's job. I said, you know, my wife is a, is a real actress. She, I, I've watched her go to classes for years. She goes off Broadway, off, off Broadway. She's working all the time. I said, they really work hard. And here I come off the street. I said, I, I can't take an actor's job. It's not right. So he says, okay, then uh, I'll tell you what, you're not going to take an actor's job. I'll write you in a part that doesn't exist. So uh, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. Uh, I have a treatment. I, I, I never thought about acting, but I did think about writing, and I thought about directing. But uh, I had a, I had a treatment of a guy named Silvio Dante, and he runs a Copacabana type of club. Kind of lives in the past, and uh, you know, uh, big bands. You know, the Jewish Catskills comics, dancing girls, the whole schmear, right? Uh, and he says, well, that's, that's kind of interesting, but, but, but it's set in present day. You know, he's just kind of a guy living in the past a little bit. And he says, that's interesting. And he takes it to HBO, goes back there, and we can't afford that. So we'll make it a strip club. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, I'm going to run a strip club for the family. And that was kind of all the thinking that went into it at that point. And now this is the most interesting thing to me. And, and I don't think it's in the book. I, I, I got to put it in the next edition. <laughs> uh, here's, here's David Chase, the most, uh, you know, detailed guy. Uh, authentic, authenticity is everything to him. He creates 15 interesting characters, but leaves out the very important job in a mob. There's actually sometimes it's, it's two different people, the consigliere and the underboss. Leave them out. All right, has every other you know you know got everything else figured out in the family and both families. You know, uh, you know he's a he's a capo. He's he's this. He's that. You know, everything's figured out except that very very important role. Sometimes it's one guy. Sometimes it's two. But that, that underboss slash consigliere role is not written, right? And then here I come, and, I'm, and my role is just kind of uncertain at first, running the club. Uh, and, and slowly, you know, the vacuum, I fill that vacuum and end up playing the same role I played most of my life with Bruce Springsteen. You know, uh, it was one of the most remarkable things to reflect back on. Like, uh, you know, why wasn't that written in the first place? And, um, and, and anyway, so I ended up, I ended up in that role 
And at that point, of course, I became very comfortable because I knew what the dynamics were in spite of it, you know, being different characters, different environment, different, different, different situation entirely. But, but I knew what the dynamics of that role were being the only guy that the guy, the, the boss can trust being the guy that, you know, uh, the only guy that doesn't want to be the boss being the guy who can bring bad news to the boss because you're the only guy who, who doesn't fear the boss. Uh, and, and that, and that became, uh, that became the role. It's a, and it's a signature piece of acting, I have to say. And you. there you have it. Had you been just a singer in a rock and roll band, you know, <laughs> uh, we'd never have a consigliere to, to Tony Soprano. No. But at the same time, at the same time, you write in the book that you're, you're there, you're home, and the phone rings and it says, Stevie? And you say, yeah. He says, Bruce. And you say, hey, man. And he says, it's time to get the band back together again. Yeah. So, you know, talk about destiny or Bashir, which Faye <laughs> Shapiro, my brilliant producer, tells me means destiny in Yiddish. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, 18 years, right? I'm out of work. <laughs> you know, I mean, 18 years, I finally get a new job. I got a new career. I got a new a new mission in life, right? A new craft to learn. Uh, and now you want to put the band back together? <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. You know, it was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I really, I really had to think about it. I got to tell you the truth. I really had to think about it because uh, uh, I knew that if I, if, if I, even if I could, even if I managed to miraculously do both, my role would certainly be uh, less, um, and I would never get a chance to write sopranos or direct sopranos, and my role would be smaller than it would have been. But I just felt I needed there, there had to be some closure with the E Street Band. That the, the you know I left uh, I left it in a very emotional way uh, in, a, in a critical time, and um, you know in some ways abandoned my best friend when he might have needed me the most. Um, but you know I, I just felt this. I, I got to do some. I got to have some closure. Now, luckily, David Chase was a big enough fan. He scheduled my scenes on days off. I flew home every single day off. If we were in Los Angeles, if we were in Paris, I flew home. Um, and uh, for the uh, 10 years and seven seasons of Sopranos and four years and three seasons of Willyhammer, 14 years, we toured the entire time. And uh, I missed one month of one tour and one month of another tour. So I missed two months of touring and 14 years of doing both simultaneously. Yeah, it's remarkable. Your poor dog, who we've heard from a little bit on the uh, podcast today, in the early 1990s when you had nothing going on, you were walking that dog all the time. Now the dog doesn't know where you are. Well, (laughs) it was a different dog, but yes, (laughs) it was... uh, yeah, you know that's all. I, that's all. I, that's all I did in my mind most of the nineties. Uh, it turned out I was I was actually doing, doing a lot of things. You know, I, I realize as I'm writing the book, but uh, 
But in my mind, yeah, it was it was a lost decade. Yeah, but what's nice in 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 the book um, in this period that we're just talking about now, you you say that you're that there's a reconciliation of brothers, that your rejoining the band is is a, is a reconciliation and a coming to terms with all the uncertainty that you have and the sense that you had disappointed a friend and stuff. So I think that was, that was nice. It was very touching. And yeah, no, it, it really, um, it, it re-solidified our, our friendship and, uh, and, you know, and now it's back to where it was in the beginning. You know, pretty much. That's good. That's, that's oh, good. Yeah. No, no, it's all, all good. All good. So I want to talk about something that's very important to me as the son of a teacher and the father of a teacher. And while I had hoped that we would have had the time to talk about your newest records, Soul Fire and Summer of Sorcery, I fear that we may run out of time. But and I have to tell you that uh, as I listen to Soul Fire, the, I can't figure out between some things just don't change or the city weeps tonight, which is my favorite, but they're both wonderful songs. So, you know, if nothing, this book has me listening to all of your solo stuff all over again. And some of it is just terrific stuff all of it's terrific stuff but some of it is really terrific stuff no thank you for that i really uh i appreciate that it's two of my favorites also so what i wanted to perhaps almost end on is uh the rock and roll forever foundation and teach rock and that's a very important part of who you are and and what our listeners can learn about it and how they can support it would be something i'd like to um, bring to their attention. Yeah, um, um, the Rock and Soul Foundation uh, basically uh, uh, took me about fifteen years to figure out the TeachRock.org uh, music history curriculum, which now um, we just went public with it a couple of years ago, and uh, now we have, we have like forty thousand teachers registered and. and Dozens of partner schools involved, and uh, um, the idea uh, is to integrate the arts into the education system. And I feel it's it's transformative. Um, you know, kids come to school with gifts uh, intact: uh, curiosity, imagination, energy, uh, uh, instinct, emotions. And and what what what's most of our school system, you know, does is is just crush those things and ignore them, and feed them a bunch of facts that um, uh, are not particularly useful to them in in the kids' minds, you know. But you just can't teach this generation that way. I don't think and be effective. You can't say learn this now and someday you'll use it. Not when they can get the answer in 10 seconds on their device. You know, you got to give them a reason to, to be there and to be, uh, in, you know, attentive. And, and, uh, and it's, it's what I call teaching in the present tense. You know, give them something they can use now, right now, because it's all about now with this generation. And so um, the idea is to integrate the arts into each discipline, not as, not as a separate class, not as an after-school thing but integrate art into science, into math, into technology, into, into uh, engineering, and turn STEM, 
which is our basic curriculum, science, technology, engineering, math, into STEAM, add the A, but, it, but literally integrated into those disciplines. Uh, and and uh, I witnessed a partner school right before the quarantine, and the enthusiasm of the kids and teachers is just uh, amazing to see. Uh, it just makes it makes it makes education more fun, and 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 connects the dots. That's what the arts do. It connects the dots, you know. And I I feel very strongly it's more important to teach kids how to think than what to think, you know. Uh, the, the what can come later. Let's teach them how to think, so that whatever whatever gets thrown at them, they can connect the dots and, and, and make up their own minds and and, and be more, you know more active rather rather than a sort of passive, you know, receiving of information they don't know what to do with. You know, let's 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 you know let's make it a little bit more interactive, if you will. So that that's that's basically what we do. It's great stuff. I remember in nineteen seventy seven I was in law school and I was teaching a class on criminal justice in to what we called then an inner city high school. And in my criminal justice class I would play Dylan's Hurricane or the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll. And we used music to understand how the criminal justice system really works. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly the same thing. And, and, and you know, it really, it really, it really works. <laughs> you know, it works. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's just nice, you know, teaching, you know, re- revealing to, you know, black kids that they have every right in the world to play guitar because they invented it. You know, the rock and roll is half created by blacks, half created by whites with a healthy contribution by Latinos and, and women in general. So it's a, it's very much this common ground, common language thing that everybody has a piece of in a legitimate way. And, and, um, you know, I mean, uh, and and kids should could, should feel should feel a part of that and 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 own it, you know. And uh, it's nice to reveal those things to the kids, and you know, you show them Chuck Berry for the first time, or, or you know, BB King or Albert King, or you know, uh, anybody but Freddie King. And <laughs> and the story you know, there, you have to read the book. <laughs> You know, but it's, 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 it's just fun to see the enthusiasm. And that's what it's all about, man. You know, if, if kids like one class or one teacher, they'll come to school and, and we're determined eventually if we get this thing disseminated enough to be that, to be that cool class the kids look forward to because we have got to do something about the dropout rate. It's, it's, it's out of control and uh, nobody talks about it, but it's close to 50% in the poor neighborhoods. And then 50% of those kids end up in the criminal justice system. I mean, those statistics are just embarrassing, you know. And we call ourselves civilized. And don't even get me started on the homeless thing, you know, which is just incredible that we tolerate the homeless thing as we do. But anyway, we're we're hoping that eventually we will start affecting the dropout rate and keep kids at least through high school, which gives them a, a fighting chance, you know. Absolutely. So we have to come to a conclusion. I, I don't want to come to a conclusion, but we, we sort of more or less have to. And I want to conclude by reading you two things and have you give us a, your your closing argument, if you will. <laughs> you introduced chapter one of the book, 
with a quote from the unwritten book, the unwritten book you describe as your father giving advice to his lazy oldest son, you. And the quote is, if you're going to do something, do it right. And then in the introduction to chapter 31, you write, write, act, paint, play, perform, work, think, speak, live with purpose, or hide under the bed until checkout time. And I think this memoir is an absolute tribute to a person who has done things right and who has refused to lie under the bed until checkout time. And I'm grateful to you, Stevie Van Zandt, for, for writing it. Well, thank you for your kind words. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I use the same the same rap when I'm doing a, a master class in, in songwriting or just talking about life. I'm like, write with purpose, live with purpose. You know, I mean, life's too short. Like, you know, you know, to get up and like wonder what you're going to do today, <laughs> decide, you know, decide what you would like to happen today and make it happen, you know, uh, or else what are we doing here? You know, because we got to, life is too boring as it is. We got to, we got to do something about this, you know? Yeah. Please. So, Chintuani, Stevie Van Zandt, thank you for, for joining me today on That Said. Great talking to you, my friend. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.